It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Teresa, what was the best part of last week? Time is flying. I know. I can't believe we're in the middle of August already. I know. But I've got to babysit my nephews. Aww. I was planning on babysitting my, like, two-and-a-half-month-old yeah. little nephew, and then my brother surprised us, and my mom was over there with the other two nephews, so oh, it fun. was the five-year-old, the two-year-old, and the baby, oh. and it was a blast. Yeah. They were busy, yeah. It was very busy. <laughs> there was, yeah, it was pretty chaotic, but super fun. Yeah. And very good memories. Hey. I loved getting to see my mom and Aww. hold the baby. And so, yeah, that's definitely. Cute. And then a new episode of Ted Lasso. Oh. And it was a Christmas episode. Okay. So, two of my favorite show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've heard such great things. Such a good show. So, good week last week. Oh my gosh, I listened to a really fun podcast with Brene Brown. She oh, interviewed I love her. Me too. But loved her even more after this podcast with, she interviewed Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt, the guys from Ted Lasso. Oh, okay. So I'm setting up a family marathon for Ted Lasso tomorrow, kind of after her podcast, because she's watched each episode three times. Wow. And if it's good enough for Brene Brown to watch three times. That's good enough for your fans. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Cool. That'll be my highlight for next week. So if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you probably have heard us talk about plogging. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we even have an article on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. But for those of you who don't know what plogging is, it's basically picking up garbage while jogging, mixing environmental action and physical fitness. So Amy and I fit in. We try to do, we we're trying to do once a week, but it's kind of slipped a little bit. But we still have been getting out there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm always amazed how we think we're not going to fill our bags, but we and do. Then, and some. Yeah. And last time we ran into a guy and a possibly a rat or a maybe baby nutria. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. Sure. <laughs> I hope it's the latter. <laughs> I don't know, but and we're not making plugging sound very good. Yeah. I also was thinking that with plugging, we should collect the stuff and make, you know how they have those craft projects, the artwork? We yeah. could do like a Beaverton mural yeah. thing with I've seen some garbage. I've seen some great. We were up in Seattle last summer, and we saw a really cool art show. With It was all recycled material. I think they we made could some do really that. Cool stuff. I was encouraging yeah. my daughter to do that for her art class. Yeah. I think, I think it's a good idea. We could collect the garbage, and someone else could do the artwork, because yeah. I'm not crafty in that way. But anyway, I'm super excited to talk about Anna Sachs. My mother-in-law actually sent me this article on her. She does trash walks in oh. New York City. Unlike our plogging, these trash walks are less about cleaning up and more about raising consciousness and letting people know what's out there. Although she spends much of her time digging through the trash, she wears gloves that they can't break through. They can't okay. penetrate the gloves. Yeah. So she's doing it safely. But digging through the trash of businesses and homes in New York, Anna Sachs does it with a camera in hand and a growing web presence on Instagram and TikTok, focusing on showing how much waste is happening in modern society and advocating for ways to reduce waste by channeling it from the dumps instead going to where people can use it. Right. Yeah. So she's a native New Yorker and an environmental activist. She's worked for Think Zero, 
a zero-waste consultancy firm, and started her trash box as a part-time hobby, which I think is awesome. She'd find things that she could rescue from the trash, whether it be household items like dishes or children's toys, books, furniture, food, grocery products. And what surprised her was just how much waste there was. You know, how much need is out there. Right. And all this waste. She was showing videos of, like, they would take toothpaste and just squeeze it all out so that people couldn't use it or rx bars and then she would rip they'd rip open the bars so that people couldn't use them she'd find bags of food outside of restaurants and stores that were thrown out if not sold in the day despite hungry people all over new york she'd find clothes and furniture that could be used for people in need stores would throw out things that were returned that could not be repackaged and sold do you know know. they um i know that like pottery barn does that with their Drugs and some of their yeah. stuff that comes back. I've seen yeah. it's been in, in the dumpster. Yeah, yeah I've same seen that. with Costco. They yeah. just toss it instead of donating it or yeah. giving it to the needy. Disgusted by the waste, Anna started posting these things on her Instagram, the Trash Walker. The purpose of her Instagram is twofold. One is it highlights how much waste there is in New York and promotes ways to dispose of unwanted items in a more environmentally and socially conscious way. And two, <laughs> this. I feel kind of a little bad about this. Shame certain groups and companies into changing their policies. And sometimes yeah. we only change if we if that's kind of drawn to our attention. Yeah, yeah. If it's put in, if it's out, if it's out there. A recent post of Anna's is where a school district in New York threw out dozens of tables, chairs, books, and other equipment, filling dumpster after dumpster. These were serviceable items that could have been used at any community center, charities, soup kitchens, shelters, right. but instead they were just in the dumpsters. So CVS, that's another one where she has a lot of footage. The mega pharmacy change has been a recurring target for Anna. She's found garbage bags full of usable material that CVS simply is unable to sell. It's not garbage, but they're items that could definitely be used by other groups. She's documented time and time again the waste at CVS and has even petitioned its management to change its practices. This has had some impact where the CEO of CVS allowed some stores in New York to donate goods rather than throwing them out, which is great. But once again, it's just a start. Yeah. So, so far, that's just a handful of stores in New York City out of 10,000 locations across the country. So, it's progress. Right, Definitely awesome, but more needs to be done. And has also posted stories about retail employees being required to intentionally damage goods or destroy food products so that the item could not be dumpster dived for. The thing that's interesting, so she she requests for people to send, like, employees. She's like, send me footage of what you have to do. And some people have sent in things with... You know, dumping donuts the night before, the bagels, are, and they're right. like, this is sad and it's sickening, but it's policy. So kind of risky from the employee. To do that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But one story posted was from a retail clerk at a chain store. He was required to cut up a perfectly fine office chair before throwing it out so nobody could salvage it. The boss watched, I mean, double-checked to make sure that, that it was done and wow. tossed. I'm and just trying to understand the rationale for, I guess maybe there's just not a resource to, I don't know, what, 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 I mean, there must be some sort of middle person that they just don't want to donate or what, it's just too much time and effort. I don't I think it's time and effort. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Cause yeah, I, it's just making my mind think. I know, but it all, bottom line, it's just sickening and it's really shows the mindset of corporate America is what it boils down right. to. And it's just totally messed up. But they could have donated that perfectly good chair, and yet they're throwing it out, even though someone could have used it. Yeah. 
The same thing is true for food. Lots of grocery stores and restaurants throw out large quantities of food that they don't sell at the end of the day. Companies will say that it's a liability issue. And I remember when I worked at a coffee shop, they um, started off donating all the pastries the night before. They would drop them off for the homeless and then they eventually stopped doing that because they were worried about getting sued. But And that's often what they say, that if someone eats their food, they could get sued if they get sick. But in 1996, I did not know this, but Congress passed the Good Samaritan Food Donation Act, which gives civil and criminal protection to businesses that donate food. Yeah. I feel like printing that up and like, plus, you know, sending it to all these stores. Yeah. Some states have laws to help encourage donation of food, but in most states, the law is unclear or confusing, which leads to food being thrown out rather than donated. Right. So I would love for more places to know about this 1996. Yeah. I mean, I know I worked at a faith cafe at our old church in the Starbucks. Mm-hmm. We'd get Starbucks leftover sandwiches, pastries. And so at the end of the service of whatever meal we were making, we'd come around and people could take all these extra Starbucks packages home, food so it's so, just some companies, yeah. some big companies are doing, are doing it, the right thing. But yeah. In France, a law was passed in 2016, making it illegal for grocery stores to throw out food that could be donated. For example, grocery stores typically discard fruit, vegetables that are getting close to their expiration date. Right. And in France, those items are made available to shelters and food kitchens to help the poor and homeless populations. I think I always just assume that when it's getting close, then they find... You know, Oregon Food Bank, or they find, but I don't think it, you know, a lot of times. That doesn't happen. It's not always happening. One grocery store said that it donates anywhere between 200 to 400 euros worth of vegetables, fruit, and dairy products every day. And these French companies get a tax break for these donations. Wow. Which I think is a win-win. Right, right. It has substantially reduced their food waste, provided free food to a group that obviously needs it, and it's been embraced by the grocery stores as they have economic benefits for making the donation. Right. So I think it's brilliant. Anna Sachs is working on creating a nonprofit organization that promotes legislation to create opportunities to reduce waste, particularly by corporations, and provide tax incentives to companies to donate materials rather than throw them away. She wants to make donating the items to be reused the obvious choice for companies. Right. Keeping hundreds of tons of garbage out of landfills each year. I mean, that's another thing. This is just going into, into our landfills. landfills right? So check out her Instagram at the Trash Walker. It's actually super interesting. Yes. And I need to thank my mother-in-law for passing that that's along. That's so awesome. And I want to try to think about ways that in our community we can encourage people and businesses to donate right. rather than dispose. So awesome, awesome really person cool. out there. Yeah, very cool. You suggested the book Eat a Peach by David Chang. Well, you've got your Today Show. I know. And now my new thing is People Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so we all have connections. But it was funny. I was uh, I talked to my husband, Ryan, he, and I told him about the book. And he said he had watched David Chang's Netflix series, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. So I watched an episode with Kate McKinnon in Cambodia. I've they never tri- even heard of this. Yeah, it's really cool. They go to all these different locations. Mm-hmm. But they checked out street food in Phnom Penh. And it was neat to see this real sensitive side to Kate McKinnon. She's usually so lighthearted. Oh my gosh, I'm my favorite person funny, on SNL. you know, yeah. on SNL. So yeah. and she was actually emotional talking about her experience in Cambodia. Aww. So it's a real intimate, like they go to check out food and then mm-hmm. they have conversations about it and the people. So it's, it's pretty cool. So I was curious. So Eat a Peach is a memoir, details David's life and path 
to becoming this world-class chef and so much more. I'm so curious with how he came up with that name. Yeah. Well. That title. So um, Lucky Peach in Korean is Momofuku, which is the name of his restaurant. Okay. I dug and dug and okay. tried to figure out what that relationship, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It may be in Korean, but I couldn't find it. So my apologies. But that answers But that's question. the connection okay. there. But he talks about dealing with racism, thoughts of suicide, self-doubt, and anxiety. Which is kind perfect of for mental health coming mental, up. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of woven throughout the book. He's Korean-American, born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Arlington, Virginia, he talks about this really kind of a pivotal moment with he's in this go-kart accident at eight with his friend and brothers. It like really impacted his relationship, especially with his father. While go-karting, his leg got jammed under, mm. resulting in this like lightning bolt shaped injury to his femur. Initially after the accident, his grandmother and mother and sister took turns applying this mysterious yellowish red paste every half hour to see if he could walk again. And his dad was convinced it was all in his mind. Uh So no such luck. After crying and dealing with the pace treatments (laughs) after a few days, his mom took him to the pediatrician where the leg was set and it was like never discussed again. (laughs) But I think it had some kind of an impact. Parenting fail. Yeah, parenting fail. We all know about these. But he also talks about religion was the center of his upbringing and describes his family kind of waterboarding him into religion, hmm. just like from just from all uh-huh. from church, from all avenues. He also was a golf prodigy at a young age and won two state championship competitions and got a golf scholarship to Georgetown Prep Boarding School. Wow. But sadly, shortly after that, he, he kind of got into his head and he his golf game totally fell apart. Just the depression? The depression or, or, or the... I think that's kind of when he... Being in high school is when he kind of became aware that something was mentally off with him. Mm. And he ended up talking to an in-house counselor mm-hmm. at the prep school. So he kind of became aware of that. After high school, he went on to Trinity College and focused on religious studies. That didn't lead to where he expected. After college, he had like a variety of jobs, including teaching English in Japan. And while he was in Japan... is. Ramen was a big trend taking off. Shops were popping up everywhere, and David fell in love. And this inspired him to pursue a culinary career, and he ended up studying at the French Culinary Institute after returning to the U.S. and moving back to New York. He bounced around a lot and did a short stint back in Japan before again returning to New York. He got a job at his idol, uh, Alex Lee's restaurant, Café Boulud. He continued to struggle with mental health issues, with depression, suicidal thoughts. He kept uh-huh. thinking he didn't you know, want to dishonor his family by killing himself. But he struggled with the feeling of ashamed of needing help, which I think is pretty common. David experienced his first depressive state of bipolar disorder and sought the help of a therapist who helped him identify what was going on. I just really appreciate his honesty mm-hmm. and vulnerable way. Oh, he, absolutely. He talks about his mental health just throughout this book. It's really woven in throughout all of it, his journey to become a chef. It's just really... Well, and I, I think really it's so easy. That. You don't want to talk about... I mean, it's embarrassing right. for some and painful yeah. to talk about. Yeah, so but I just so Kudos to him that yeah. he would his be honesty. open. Yeah. yeah. So while working at Cafe Balloud... David soon came to realize that, you know, fine dining at the time was really a scene that was primarily geared to the wealthy, you know, focusing on French and European cuisine. 
And he knew that was only a small part of the story with food and wanted to change that and offer a dining experience that is affordable and unique. And he's not just talking about like your cheap eats either. He wanted to create something driven by techniques, respect for ingredients, high quality food without the high price environment. And it's interesting. He started talking about these ideas of opening a restaurant with his therapist as long as he's in there (laughs) talking about other stuff, but which helped him formulate his ideas. Along with his financial help from his dad, he opened his first restaurant at 26. Wow. The Noodle Bar, Momofuku, um, which means Lucky Peach. Mm. Um, So this financial partnership with his dad was also a way to rebuild their relationship. His dad would arrange these, like, check-ins, going over the nuts and bolts of business. Um, And at the time, David talks about buying, like, Japanese cookbooks on Craigslist, you know, to have them translated. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is early 2000s, and the internet wasn't so vast. Like, you didn't yep. have recipes. Yep. So that's the way he would approach his, some See, of his recipes. See, I love cookbooks, but my kids don't understand it because they just look online. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah we're I so, totally get that's it. That's so different, I mean, even in this, what, 20-some years. Uh, he hired Mexican-born chef Kino um, off the street. He started, they started with a simple menu of, like, pork belly, buns, hoisin, pickles, steamed bread to accompany the ramen. And he was working so much, he temporarily stopped going to therapy and started self-medicating with alcohol. And I really, I can't imagine the pressure mm-hmm. because 99% of restaurants don't make it past the first year. And, you know, he's got his dad helping him with yeah. his loan, I'm sure, at 26. And he already was stressed about that got, relationship. Yeah. And unfortunately, his first attempt at ramen was not a hit. His flavors were off. So he decided to change. Do, so did he have to close the restaurant? No, or, he okay. changed his menu. Okay. He, he just kind of started cooking with uh, Kino and to kind of combine their cul- culinary backgrounds to create something new and unique. Mm-hmm. And he kind of also realized he was hiding behind his backgrounds, you know, like the food he grew up on, like uh, kimchi. Mm-hmm. So the menu morphed into this fusion of Korean and Mexican with items like shrimp and grits with a t- twist of this noodle bar kind of flavors. He offered mm-hmm. a caprese salad, which I love caprese mm-hmm. salad, cherry tomatoes, soft tofu, and sesame vinaigrette, hmm. so kind of an instead interesting of a basil twist. or yeah. instead of a um, balsamic. I, I love their passion for creating something unique. And along the way, they had some hangups. Like City Hall thought the name Momofuku was lewd, and the EPA was trying to shut them down because they had these complaints of like pork smells, you oh know, my gosh. oozing from out of the building. But you know. The noodle bar turned out to be a hit, and patrons had difficulty getting a reservation, and not a bad problem to have. Initially, uh, David wanted the cooks to serve the entrees to the guests. That's interesting. Yeah, they kind of had an, the kitchen was kind of open, like you could see the cooking going on, and I think he thought, oh, you know, the cook or chef would bring out the food, but then he later changed his mind, realized the necessity of servers. He also implemented online reservations, which was novel, again, because we're mm-hmm. talking about the newness of the internet. Mm-hmm. I just admire his, his ambition so much. Shortly after opening Noodle Bar, he opened Momofuku Sam Bar, which means wrapped in Korean. His dad helped him secure a loan for the second location. He was like way financially leveraged. I mean, his monthly payments were nearing 47000 Oh, my gosh. Which I think, yeah. I, when I read that, my heart was racing. Yeah. <laughs> but then when he went to anxiety. sign the loan papers, his dad, it dropped to 14000 His dad took a lean out on his own business. Aww. So to lessen the payment, which mm-hmm. is really sweet. I mean, it's neat to see how, 
you know, their the business relationship is really helping mm-hmm. to rebuild that father their relationship. relationship. Yeah. yeah, I just it's I love that. And I also thought it was interesting, you know, with the birth of this internet and email and everything, he made it mandatory for his staff to take notes every day and send an email out on how service and food went. Which, you know, just every day, everyone had to... totally be all over that. You know, just I give your it. feedback. Yeah. What went right, Short great. and yeah. sweet, yeah. But it paid off because they got a three-star review at, um, in the New York Times for Psalm, that new restaurant, mm-hmm. which is huge. And he also got... Uh, uh, David also got nominated for a John Beard Award for uh, Rice which is and Star Chef. Yeah, which is really cool. All along, though, anxiety and stress are just right there at bay well stress with the restaurant yeah he had so much self-doubt and he felt like he didn't deserve accolades you know i love um though when they attended the john beard awards he rented a prom like bus as he puts it the whole gang plus the plus ones oh they went to adam perry lang's it's a well-known spot for smoked meat in hell's kitchen (laughs) It's funny because they had to wear like plastic aprons, gloves, garbage bags wrapped around their arms to protect their formal wear. Which they I, still probably smell like the smoked meat. And I guess people <laughs> at this awards ceremony would thought it was a bit disrespectful because normally people mm. like pay tribute to some fine dining restaurant. Oh my gosh! You know, but David was happy because it was the first time he and his team had done something together, mm-hmm. and it made them feel like a family. Which I love. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, as he opened more restaurants and developers reached out to him, like Las Vegas locations, he published his first cookbook, Momofuku. His book agent, uh, Kim Witherspoon, is also Anthony Bourdain's Mm. agent. And as Tony, that's how David calls him, as Tony, Anthony was asked by the book agent to write a blurb in David's cookbook. And that's how they became acquainted and dear friends. Okay. they shared a lot in common in their respective perspectives on the culinary world. They spoke together at a New York wine and food festival where they poked fun at a hip trend <laughs> in San Francisco at the time where they were just putting these figs on the plate. And they were like coming back in this in this presentation saying like, do something with your food. I mean, I think they even had the F-bomb in there. Like, I mean, they're just dropping fresh. Yeah. Because I think it's because California and really the West Coast, we have a lot of accessibility to fresh mm-hmm. Uh, produce and maybe not so much well it goes back to our waste New York. stuff yeah. stop wasting it yeah Just, stop wasting it so yeah um so his relationship with tony was special and it grew over the years david has written about how devastated he was to learn about anthony's suicide mm-hmm. i love watching anthony bourdain's show no reservations ryan and i watched that for years i mean he was such an awesome storyteller. I know people just loved him. I know. Loved I mean, him. he connected with the people and the food he encountered. Mm-hmm. I read he was always willing to say hi to a fan or sign an autograph. So I, I don't know. I just, it's, it's interesting that I think these a lot of two, people could relate to him, even though I mean I didn't know much about him, but right, the people I know that adored him, yeah, they felt like he was a friend, right? Which and they, these two chefs both battled mental health, so. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I think, after that, I wonder if that's what prompted him to maybe write this to do book. book. Yeah, I don't know. But for David, the the awards and accolades, you know, kind of continued. And Psalm was ranked 31 out of the world's 50 best restaurants. Wow. Makes so me want to go there. I know. I mean, and so, while uh, David was attending a state dinner in honor of Korean President Lee uh, Ming-bak at the White House during Obama's presidency... 
He mentions highlights of that evening uh, hearing Janelle Monet perform and then sitting next to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, what a, not a bad night. Oh, yeah. But um, he also met Dr. Kim, mm. who has done transformal. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not familiar with him, but he's done a lot of work fighting AIDS and curing infectious diseases in third world countries through his organization, Partners in mm-hmm. Health. And the two of them kept in touch. And Dr. Kim actually became a mentor. And he talked to David about how he benefited from all this like executive coaching and suggested David check into a coach, Marshall uh, Goldsmith. So he hmm. did. And Marshall uh, Goldsmith's team did a 360-degree feedback where they kind of re- interview all sorts of people in your life, you know, and the comments are collectors, the closest people to David. The first day with all this feedback is all positive comments. And the next mm-hmm. day... Is the negative, which I think that would be so hard to hear. Um, but David looked through each mm. one. You know, the underlying feeling was his employees stayed by his side, even though they couldn't stand him. Mm. Uh, he had anger issues and took it out at times on his employees. But I so admire his willingness just to receive the critical yeah. feedback and even share that in this memoir. I mean, I think that's so brave. Well, and it's a grow. It's a way to grow. Grow. I mean, you don't grow unless you can see that. Exactly. And after receiving the feedback, David was acutely aware of how he caused damage. And he asked Marshall, do I have a chance here? I mean, I don't know where I would begin. And I love this. Marshall replied, that means we're on the right track, Dave. And I just going to make me cry. I just love it. I mean, so he began, David began to develop a more specific understanding of Marshall's coaching philosophy and try to implement it within his restaurants. Um, and then at the same time, he's, he's working with his therapist to go off medication, which and really, is that because he wanted to, or I think, he, I think that's the dance that every, a lot of no, people do with no, mental health yeah. and he wanted to push himself out his comfort, yeah. side his comfort zone and try to be really healthy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a hard decision to make. And I think he, you know, he did it for a period of time and his therapist said it could have an effect on your mood. You know, it's, it's hard. But then he learned, in addition to bipolar disorder, he had effective dysregulation of his emotions, which meant, and this kind of ties back to that anger, which meant his mind doesn't process an acute situation. Like, for example, with some incident in the kitchen with a staff, he would perceive it as some sort of sabotage, which I think is huge to recognize. Rather than it just being some simple Simple think. Right. But but to be aware. Okay. Yeah. So then he eventually went back on his meds, and I think, like we were saying, it's not uncommon to kind of experiment taking a break and then mm-hmm. going back on. But I, I love that he's so honest about this because not not knowing how this feels, I mean, right. being me, just like that he's truthful about this, it it's very helpful. Yeah, I mean, actually, as I read life. this, I really did feel like I'm on this journey of I'm trying this, I'm going to understand right. people that are in this position. So I, I really applaud him for that. And then, just kind of switching gears, while, while back to food. While he was traveling in the South, he tried out Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and it inspired him to make a chicken sandwich with a dissection of Asian-American experience. Um, hmm. He named the restaurant Fuku. It's kind of a riff off the Momo Fuku. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of guess there's a little bit of fanatic there where he's – Trying to make a statement mm-hmm. to those who have mocked his restaurant. Um, but he's also making a political statement, too. Mm-hmm. In his way. In his yeah. way. And in his restaurants, he included posters of the ugly stereotypes of Asian, Asian sidekicks, like Lo- 
Lopan from Big Trouble in Little China or Mickey Rooney's, you know, Bucktooth, you know, Noshi from Breakfast at Tiffany's, mm-hmm. which I think it's, it's really bold. Very, very bold. And then he had a Bible verse on his cups, kind of like Chick-fil-A, but kind of more of a, not uplift, more damning kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then the wrapper around his chicken sandwiches, he used the word uh, delicious, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Delicious. He's kind of making fun of how people make fun of Asians speak, and I, it's, oh. and I, you know, I he is trying to That's make a his statement, way of trying to make a statement. He's trying to speak into racism. Yeah, and he wanted people, white people in particular, Ouch. feel uncomfortable yeah. saying that out loud. Which I think I res- I really respect his ballsy approach. Mm-hmm. But you know, he however he was at like a sporting event serving his sandwiches, and he heard people laughing when they were saying that word. Mm-hmm. And so I think he decided to nix it. He no. took that off in the Bible verse, which I it is definitely an unconventional way of addressing yeah. racism. But he tried it. But, but I appreciate the boldness, and yeah. it's a different avenue, you yeah. know. And he, we tried it. He saw it didn't work. Yeah. So, uh, but I just, I so admire. None of us have the answers. We so don't I have appreciate the answers. So that he's... Putting himself out there to try right, something. Right. To get people to think yeah. at least. But I really admire his willingness to talk about mental health in an honest way. His journey to navigating the medication and therapy. We need more people. And oh, I really yeah. have to say famous people putting a face to this. Yeah. Uh, it's so amazing that he struggled with it. And it's such, you know, a huge culinary success. I mean, I think it really goes to show you just don't know what's going on with someone no. on the inside. I mean, recently, just last week, we were talking about Robin Williams right. with his the anniversary of his his death. Yeah. And no one knew that he was suffering what so was much because of what he put on the what how he portrayed himself. Right. And he was trying to make other people happy when he was suffering on the inside. So, absolutely, we need to dig in with this. And I just, it kind of brings me back to, like, our podcast, like, I mean, it's so amazing to me about every single person I think we've talked about has some sort of passion that just drives them, whether it be in sports or politics, the environment, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I just love that common thread that it seems to kind of ring true with everybody we've talked about. Um, but at the end of his book, he offers some really great words of wisdom for getting started as a chef, which I think is so cool. Um, but, you know, he's continued to work on his mental health. He's now married. He's mm-hmm. To Grace, his wife, and they've got a son, Hugo. Oh, that's um, cute. So cute. And then I love reading that during COVID, he was on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he won a million dollars. And he donated to... Is that the show that used to be Regis? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And he won and donated to Southern Smoke Foundation. Um it's a, which is a Houston Houston based crisis relief organization oh my gosh. for people working in the hospitality industry. I checked out their website, and they have distributed over $8 million uh, in funds since their beginning in 2015. Wow. Chris Shepard launched Southern Smoke after learning about his friend, Antonio Ginola, who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, since then, they've donated 763000 to MS Society. And then in 2017, they shifted focus to provide support to people in food and beverage after Hurricane Harvey. I mean, I just think this is so great. They have all these links to, like, mental health care, which a lot of hospitality workers don't have access to because they don't have insurance. But they have a designated um, Southern Smoke caseworker who connects the worker with a clinician at the University of Houston. So awesome. 
Very cool. Information about this book and episode will be on our uh, website at tangentialinspiration.com. That'll get me watching a food show. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. You don't need a silver fork to eat good food. Paul Prudhomme. I saw an article on musician uh, Jack Johnson advocating for the environment, in particular the ocean. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, growing up as a surfer in Hawaii, he spends a lot of time in the I water. I did not know he grew up in Hawaii, yeah. and I did not know he was a surfer. Yeah, yeah. That's what he was before hmm. a musician, because I think he got in a bad surfing accident. Oh. And like really smashed his face and mm. had to have reconstructive surgery. And I think that's when he picked, learned the picked mm-hmm. up the guitar and became he had extra time on his hands. He had extra with time on his hands. But yeah, uh, over the years of surfing, he's become aware of pollution and junk and litter in the ocean. He started a foundation, Kakui, uh, Hawaii, as a way to speak into the issue. In 2015, he was invited to join a trip to explore the Sargasso Sea in the North Atlantic. He also teamed up with filmmakers Ian Cheney and Kizzy O'Neill to produce The Smog of a Sea, a short film on their experience and their firsthand knowledge of how plastic is polluting our ocean. One thing they observed, and we've talked about this, the fragmentation of plastic waste, mm-hmm. um, how the smaller pieces get are you know, more likely to get into the fish and birds and mammals. And then later, we're just, we ingest just those. those. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately is in our food chain. Yeah. As a result, Jack Johnson wrote a song called Fragments for a service announcement to bring awareness to the public. You know, it's just people need to be educated. He's also part of, and I was reading this, it was at the tail end of July, but Plastic Free July campaign. Oh. Yeah, their motto oh. is, Choose to refuse single-use plastic. We'll have to do that next, next July. Year. I know. That's what I was thinking. It was like oh, right at the end. Dang it. I know. We missed it. He's been a longtime supporter. Um, and actually, they on the, his website, he did, they did a lot of art with recycled materials. Oh. And they actually built a barrel, which is, you know, when you surface, mm-hmm. the barrel is mm-hmm. like the tunnel of, mm-hmm. the, of the wave. And yeah. so it's all made out of recycled material. And it's so cool. Like, people will stand inside of it and do, like, oh, photos. It's really, fun. it's pretty cool. So what island is that on that he does, that he has that? I don't know. Oh, goodness, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll have, have to look that up. I'll have curious. to look that up. Yeah. But then, you know, as a musician, he's also seen firsthand the impact of plastic waste at concerts and festivals. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, don't even get me started. Yeah, he helped launch BYO Bottle Campaign to reduce the plastic pollution Mm -hmm. at these venues, which I think is so cool. What's the um, concert that's here? Like, pick a... Keep going. I'll come up with it. Yeah. But uh, he also, on his website, he has this list of Jack's top 10 plastic-free tips, which is really cool. But now switching gears to something local and still environmental, uh, Ryan and I were out to dinner and on Southeast Division in Portland, and we parked in this nearby neighborhood, and I saw this really cute white box with the words Ridwell in orange on, on someone's porch. And I was so curious, like, what is that cute box? And so I checked out their website, and it's really cool. It began as a father and son trying to do the right thing with dead batteries. Like, don't you, don't you all go, what do we do yeah. with our batteries? So on the weekends, they were offering to pick up their neighbor's old batteries so they wouldn't end up in landfills. Good quality time for the two of them. I know. I love it's that. It's so cute. But their pickups grew, and eventually the word spread throughout the neighborhood. And then over time, it turned into their company. They named it Ridwell. 
So it's a large community sharing new ideas and truly making the difference. Now they're investing in new recycling partners who can process this waste, which I think is so cool. They offer pickup for batteries, light bulbs, plastic film, and clothes. Um, membership costs anywhere from $12 to $16 a month, depending on how many months you sign up for. It includes a pickup every two weeks and a cute Ridwell. You get a cute Ridwell bin and all these um, cloths bags to put you know separate your items I love that this is started by a father and son yeah once again I just love it. two people that are making a difference yeah, just said, yeah. hey let's do something it just sounds like a great and easy way to recycle those hard items mm-hmm. like what do you do yeah with them? you do yeah. I just love both these stories that are focusing on the environment and its future pickathon is what I was trying to come oh, up with pick-a-thon. and that's in in uh, the Pacific Northwest, but they are big on their sustainable practices with the music festival. The reason oh. I remember this side of friend who would go and you have to bring your own stuff to eat, your okay. own plates and forks awesome. and whatever, because they don't, they will not they don't the allow plates. all the trash. Yeah. yeah. So it's just That's a way to sustainable go. concert venue type That's of thing. Cool. Yeah. Very awesome. Cool. Yay. So as we're getting to know, letting you guys get to know us better. <laughs> and each other. And each other. So fun. Okay, Teresa, first job. Lifeguarding. Oh, okay. Yeah. Was that pretty was, boring? Was it THRP? Was still with the park district. Okay. And, um, you have a long relationship. I do. And the thing that's funny is that they say you can never leave the district. And we were laughing that, oh, we'll leave the district. I'm not going to be lifeguarding but forever. You haven't. But you have I have never left the Well, I mean, I left for a while. But she came but back. now I do group exercise there. That's so awesome. yeah, no. How about a favorite vacation or vacation spot? It's a toss-up with Florida, which is... Oh, I was surprised you say Florida. Well, Gator World. We took okay. the boys there, which I, I yeah, yeah, I'm conflicted with that. But And then Disney World and the stuff there. But probably my favorite vacation would have to be the Redwoods because I did a marathon down there, oh, um, Avenue of the Giants. My husband ran the half Aww. for my birthday, and then I did the fulls, and then my parents came down. It was just a full... You know, just nice. fun vacation. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably it. Avenue of the Giants down in California. How about, um, do you have anything from your childhood? Like a little memento? Oh, I uh, I really try to not. Christmas ornaments. Okay, my, yeah. My mom's aunt, who is no longer with us, but she would make ornaments every year, and she put our she oh, put our cute. name on there. Sometimes my name had an H. Sometimes oh, it did, did. not. So you had some variety. So sometimes my name was properly spelled and other times not but oh. either way I have them yeah how about a favorite lyric I would have to say this is gonna be weird Ozzy Osbourne oh okay and the crazy train okay song where he says to learn how to love right and forget how to hate oh yeah. I would I would That's almost good. tattoo that, but 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 no, I'm not going to. And how about board games? Any board games? My family would laugh at that because board games and puzzles I kind of get bored with. Oh, okay, yeah, pretty quickly. But you're a busy but, gal, you know. Well, I you just it's, it's just yeah, I don't like. It. But um, Battleship. Oh, that's I like good Battleship. One. That's yeah. fun. What mental health needs is more sunlight, more candor, more unashamed conversation. Glenn Close. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. 
Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.